So it's one prayer, the uh, eighth day of the lunar cycle. Changing season, the weather is warming up. Katina season is finished. We've been fortunate to have some visiting teachers stay with us, giving us teachings which we can now take away and reflect on as an inspiration and guidance in our own practice. One of the things they notice when visiting teachers come from overseas, particularly from Buddhist countries like Thailand, is that this being a culturally or traditionally non-Buddhist country, there's that has an effect on our practice. They say sometimes that we have to bring up our practice to a second level. It's the way it's translated from Thai. In order to pursue our goal of practicing Dhamma, Vinaya, training, as Buddhist monastics. Second level means basically we have to be twice as vigilant because not only do we have to deal with our own limitations, our own kilesas and wrong views, our own bad habits, and so on, the causes of all our suffering, our craving and attachment. But also we have to deal with uh, a society around us that is only partially understanding what we're doing and partially supportive. Although we do get much support and it's certainly not difficult to live here as a monk, practice. Nevertheless, we are constantly challenged by a culture that is not rooted in Buddhism. It comes out in our behavior, our speech, our thinking, our views, attitudes. You can see it every day, even in the monastery, let alone outside. So we have to practice with double effort We have to, whatever Dhamma Vinaya we train in, we have to practice to develop a thicker protective coating. If you look at the Vinaya practice, you know, our sila, our rules of training and our practices of mindfulness and our reflections on the Dhamma teachings. If we're practicing on an ordinary level, ordinary grade, then we have to move up to weapons grade, super thick, super strong, 
in order to deal with the challenge of practicing in a non-Buddhist country. That, that's if we want to get results from the practice. We actually want to see something tangible in our own hearts, some change. We actually want to free ourselves from suffering. Then we have to develop that extra effort. In the end, whether you're in a Buddhist country or not, you're still dealing with your own defilements, misunderstandings, accumulated karma and so on. But it's important to be aware of some of the challenges that we are confronted with so that we don't become heedless. On the other hand, they also say, the visiting teachers, that we have good fortune and we also have many good qualities, karmic accumulations. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to be Buddhist monks in a non-Buddhist country. We wouldn't have had the interest, the aspiration arise in our hearts. We wouldn't have made the effort and we wouldn't put up with some of these difficulties and the challenges that we face. So like in all situations, there's the good, there's the bad. And the negative side, we can turn into something good. Just as Ajahn Chah used to point out, if there's no dukkha, then no wisdom will arise. And you can notice in probably in your own heart, your own mind, there's always this desire to get things the way we want, follow our desires, follow our ego, to do things according to our own thoughts and opinions, because it feels comfortable to get what we want, to get comfort, to feel pleasure and so on. We tend to do that and want that and follow that habit. But that's not always good for us, is it? We tend to want to avoid dukkha, so rather than contemplating dukkha and it's seeing its origin, becoming wiser and then letting go of it, we tend more to try and avoid it through getting things the way we like, finding things that agree with us, people that agree with us, situations, material things, experiences that agree with us all the time. And obviously, even as we're practicing, we have to accept we need a certain amount of comfort and agreeable experiences just to, to live in the world and to practice. You're going to need, going to need some of that. But it's more the obsession and the habit of just constantly seeking distraction, comfort and more temporary forms of happiness. It becomes an obsession, becomes our whole kind of modus operandi, the way we are. And that's where the problem is because we tend to shy away from looking at dukkha and coming to understand it. So in this practice we have to be quite strong, quite patient and willing to engage with challenges. 
but we can use wisdom to deal with that. Some challenges, all you can do is just be patient with them, but others, a bit of wisdom helps, helps us to understand what we're doing. Remind us that in dukkha is something, the Buddha said, is something to be known, to be penetrated and understood. It's not something just to be blindly endured or to run away from or distract ourselves from, but it's something to be known. Because as we come to know dukkha as what it is, as dukkha, then that helps us to understand what the cause of it is starts to reveal to the mind what is craving, what is attachment, and how that leads to suffering. It's the only way we can progress. So in the context of living here in the West and practicing Buddhism and Buddhist teachings, we can see, well, this reflection that we've had, that it's, uh, we have to double our efforts living in the West is actually means we actually have an opportunity to maybe see and understand dukkha and overcome it better than in some other situations. Maybe more dukkha is actually helpful. It can make us wiser. But of course the only way we can really learn about how to overcome dukkha is learn to reflect on it, look at it, contemplate it and develop the skills that allow us to do that through meditation and just general skillful living, reflecting on what we do and why, moment to moment through our day. So developing sati, sampajanya, clear comprehension, and then developing wisdom. So our meditation techniques are helping with that. In whatever meditation you're doing, sitting, walking, Anapanasati, contemplating death, straight vipassana, contemplating anicca dukkha anatta phenomena, whatever, you're developing both the ability to hold the attention of the mind on whatever is coming up in experience, physical or mental, and then just to observe and contemplate the true nature of the experience and maybe just to see something arise and pass away. Our whole lifestyle is geared to that, to develop calm and an insight. And the challenges, although they can bring up obstacles, but they can also feed that, can't they? They make us try harder when there's challenges, difficulties. Another thing that the visiting teachers pointed out, particularly in the context of living, practicing in the West, Western culture, is that people are, perhaps don't have such a natural or strong faith. They're not so faith-orientated in their practice. They tend to come to Buddhism from more the intellectual background. We read, we learn from books, we think about it and we like the ideas of the Buddhist teaching, the philosophy, the theory. But with that, that has one supporting factor. We tend to learn a lot and we like to contemplate on that level, theorize, so on. 
but emotionally often we're still quite undeveloped and the faith aspect of uh, the mental faculties, the spiritual faculties we're developing has one function which is to help balance our emotions so we become more stable, more self-confident because of our faith. It's not a blind faith, it's a faith based on wisdom, use, using wisdom. But it's faith all the, all the same, the sense of belief, confidence that what we're doing is good, right, and will help us to f be free from suffering. However little pra we practice, however much, it's all going in that direction. And there's some sort of innate faith there. Particularly in Asia, you find that's very strong. Whereas in the West, we tend to have more doubt, more uncertainty, less and hence less self-confidence, more anxiety, more worry, more concerns, and think a lot. This is something we should really look at because it can be a place we can learn and get a lot of insight and which can help our practice or we can really struggle because of a weakness with our faith. In one area they said, they pointed out that it, one area that it becomes an obstacle is that when people have not such strong faith, they haven't been brought up with Buddhism and the Buddhist teachings maybe, they haven't yet developed a lot of happiness based on just having faith, then it means they're very sensitive. Yes, people we're very sensitive to praise and blame, gain and loss, you know, the worldly dhammas which affect all humans. But you notice faith helps to support the mind through those kinds of ups and downs which even come into monastic life. You know, we get praised, we get criticized. Lay people, they give us gifts or they don't give us gifts. They look after us or they ignore us. Uh, teachers give us praise and uh, encouragement and other times they give us criticism and put us down. Uh, other monastics do that as well. We get pleasure and pain, we get some painful experiences we can't get away from. We get injuries and illness and extreme cold, extreme heat. And we get pleasure sometimes, we get pleasure from meditation, we get pleasure from food and other things. So in the monastery we're not escaping from any of those worldly conditions. But they just notice when people don't have such strong faith, they seem to be even more sensitive to the worldly conditions. Whether that's true or not, you have to investigate for yourself. It's not something to just believe in or listen to, but you actually have to go away and see if that's true. But they've given that to us as a reflection. You know, do we get are we sensitive to the words of other people? Are we able to contemplate something? Or do we just react with happiness or aversion, desire and liking or disliking? Can we do that yet? Or do we just get pushed around by our own moods every time someone opens their mouth, we either get high or we get fall into hell? When it comes down to it, these are the kind of issues that affect us daily in the monastery and in our practice. Whether we learn these sort of techniques of samatha vipassana, we can hear all the high dhamma. 
if you receive a bit of feedback from someone and you get angry, then you're still on the basic level and your practice needs to get to that double thick weapons grade level that your mind can be equanimous. Otherwise you will just get stuck on that level. You will not progress. So this is where we have to really come and look at how our cultural background, society, and then our basic attachment as a human being to our own candors is operating day by day, moment by moment, through every kind of situation we get involved in. We have to learn how to establish mindfulness and contemplate to counter for the perhaps the lack of faith, which might be some and when you have faith, it's like a cushion that softens some of these difficulties that we encounter as human beings, and particularly in a monastic form. And when you have strong faith, you're willing to be patient, you're willing to listen, you're willing to learn, you're willing to put up with some of the difficulties. But if faith is weak, what do you use? You might say that's the crux of many of the Western monks is that you know, if you haven't got a strong faith, what are you going to rely on? Because just a little bit of intellectual theory is maybe not going to get you through. or It will last a while, but it's not going to get you through for the long haul. So this is something the Krubrajan who visited us have seemed to have picked up on and pointed out. And for me, practicing over many years, both in Asia and in the West, it seems to be true that we really have to work hard to balance our spiritual faculties. You know, we have sata, faith, wiriya, sati, samadhi, panya. All these different aspects of the practice form one whole. And it's something worth considering because it's the way the Buddha measured somebody's readiness to really progress in Dhamma. He actually gave us a very good system for looking at ourselves and he also used it to look at others because he's coming from a very pure, wise place and was teaching all the time. But for ourselves, we have to look at our own spiritual faculties and see where we need to balance them more, where something is lacking or where something is in extreme Obviously that only comes through time, through experience and practice, but it's something we have to keep coming back to if we're particularly finding that we're bothered by a lot of mental suffering in the course of practice. It's not just you know over a few days, but we're talking about over five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and so on. These spiritual faculties, the Buddha said, we develop over many, many lifetimes not just one lifetime or one retreat or one pansa or one year. Many, many years, many, many lifetimes. So it's something we have to keep returning to and really looking where, where might I readjust or balance some of these spiritual faculties to help deal with some of the suffering that I experience and to bring up more wholesome dhammas, the source of happiness, you know, to make adjustments in the mind. Sometimes it's good just to go back to the beginning, you know, what inspired me to practice, to become a monk. 
Sometimes it's uh, meeting individuals, sometimes reading or hearing about individuals and their practice, either the Buddha or disciples of the Buddha, modern day teachers. Sometimes it's particular experiences we had, uh, learning meditation, getting peaceful in a way we've never been before, experiencing more mindfulness, sometimes understanding karma, changing our lifestyle so we become a little wiser or more careful in our behavior and so on. We all have different backgrounds or experience but often to bring up faith we have to keep going back and nourishing the basics, go back to the basics, partly just remembering, partly through contemplation. And the Buddha said it's actually a skill for a bhikkhu to actually know how to re-establish faith in the practice. It's not kind of sort of an option that you can maybe or maybe not do or know about. It's actually a skill that a bhikkhu has to develop if he's going to stay long-term in the robes and really deepen his understanding. We have to learn how to re-establish faith so that we can develop wiriya, effort. And we put effort into establishing mindfulness, clear comprehension, which gathers together to become samadhi, but then we can't take samadhi as an end in itself. Samadhi is to support wisdom. And wisdom helps to bring us back to faith and re-deepen our faith, deepen our confidence in the practice. The way the Buddha would talk about the practice is, you know, is your faith in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha and the path of practice established yet or not? Can we stray from Dhamma Vinaya or not? Do we, you know, if you want to put it in a more worldly sort of modern day way, do you love the Dhamma Vinaya more than anything else? Or do you have other things that you put higher, more important in your mind the day by day, you know, in the way you think, your views, your opinions? How prominent is Dhamma Vinaya or how prominent are more worldly thoughts? preferences, opinions, interests, whatever. These are just ways of reflecting to help help us to understand ourselves better and to use the vehicle that we have. We have the, the monastic training, the form, the rules, the practices, the techniques. But we really have to bring them in, into our heart and use them to compare with what we had before, say before we were monks, what did we hold as highest and important? Maybe it was just literally sort of day by day going from one experience to the next without much reflection on anything. That's probably my experience as a lay person. But obviously if you really want to find some peace and uproot some of your own attachments, you have to go beyond that have to take something more deeper, more profound as your guideline. So that's why we have Dhamma Vinaya. We have truth, we have the practices that lead to truth. But then we have to hold them in our hearts as something high and important and then we have to follow that. 
As someone was saying the other day, their practice at the moment just revolves around getting out of bed in the morning when they wake up because they saw they had a very negative or limiting kind of a habit when they wake up and lie there, not getting out of bed, not doing anything. But then the next thing that happens is they just think, lie there in bed, thinking. And all what they noticed was every day the thoughts were very negative. Negative thoughts towards other people, towards themselves, towards the world, life, everything. So after many, many, many days of that, then they realized, hmm, you know, the best solution at the moment in that situation is just get out of bed. As soon as you wake up, get out of bed, be more active, and then maybe start meditating, sitting, walking, chanting, even reading a Dhamma book, whatever, rather than just indulging in lying in bed, thinking a lot of negative thoughts. They said for that, for them that's their practice of Dhamma at the moment, that's their number one priority, is to do that. It's a very simple technique, a simple application of the teaching, but it's actually pointing to something much deeper in their heart. They mm, need to actually bring the mind out of some of its old habits for the better. And not easy. Everybody loves to lie in bed doing nothing, hanging out. But then recognizing that's actually not leading to increased mindfulness, increased wisdom. It's just leading to more negative mind states. So we have to actually reflect and contemplate and think about and consider everything we're doing through our day and through our life. We have to develop that internal mirror. You know, we, we gain some wisdom from talks and teachers around us. And we shouldn't underestimate that either. Often it saves us a lot of suffering. But then we have to learn how to be our own internal teacher and that takes time and it takes a skill to have a really clear mirror that shows up every blemish without any kind of bias or without hiding anything. You know, the best mirrors are the mirrors that are the most clean so that they reflect everything, good and bad, beautiful and ugly. So the Buddha was the best mirror because his mind is so pure penetrates the nature of everything, all physical phenomena, mental phenomena, what's wholesome, unwholesome, so it completely understood karma, understood where people were at, what, it, what they're attached to, or what, they're, what attachments they were free from, the path to the end of suffering, he completely understood. So his mind is like the best possible mirror that a human mind can develop to reflect an image with complete equanimity in an unbiased way to see all aspects of whatever it's reflecting. But that's the aim, isn't it, of the practice, to get the mind to the point where it's peaceful enough, clear enough, and there's enough wisdom there to reflect in an unbiased, equanimous, unjudgmental way on itself on ourselves. We get to the point where we can do that, we can sit down and know this body and this mind as it is without 
getting lost. And all our practice is helping us to do that. You know, the training in the Vinaya, listening to Dhamma, reflecting on Dhamma, meetings, chores, renunciation, frugality, moderation, composure, right speech, right action, all the aspects of the path are developing that kind of mirror to reflect on truth. Showing the mind the truth of the way things are to itself. As far as teaching others, we can only teach a certain amount because you can only pass on through words and actions a certain amount. But in terms of this, this mind, our own mind, we can teach that very well if we develop the mirror, shine it up, clean it up, wipe it down enough. It can see itself very well. And as they say, you keep clean the mirror, then any speck of dust or blemish becomes very quickly obvious. That's what we're learning. We're learning to see the blemishes in our actions, our speech, and then ultimately in our thinking. The way we think, our views, our attitudes, whether they're in line with truth or not, whether we're seeing the impermanent nature of phenomena or not, seeing the dukkha in this world or not, seeing the lack of self in phenomena or not. That's what the mirror is being trained to do, to do and polished up to, to see, to know, to penetrate. So obviously we can hear the talks and read the books about the very highest level of insight in letting go of the, the most refined kind of kalesas that form around, say, the happiness of samadhi or the radiant mind or the very subtle sense of self that we might, might appear in our own thoughts and emotions and mental activity. But also we have to work through the basic stuff as well. And the mirror has to often just work, first of all, just on fairly obvious, ordinary stuff. Just the way we speak, the way we act. That's often part of the problem as well. That's sort of the daily grind. Just having to admit that you still have very obvious coarse defilements, selfishness, anger, greed, lust. It's not so inspiring, the sort of the bottom end of the scale, the coarse stuff. It's not nice to talk about, it's embarrassing. It's not nice to experience, it's coarse, it's heavy on the mind. But yet we have no choice, we have to keep coming back to it and going through it. Through it. So that's where the faith is very, very helpful. To have enough faith to just keep going, keep contemplating even through the murkier parts of our personality and the way we do things. With faith we get energy, we get patience, and we get persistence. Wearier is persistent effort, it means that keep coming back to is bringing up mindfulness, establishing mindfulness and reflecting on truth. This body, this mind, what's going on. 
If we can do it for small periods and then we get tired of it and we go back to our distractions. If you really want to penetrate to see dukkha as dukkha rather than just reacting to it all the time, you've got to learn to be persistently mindful so that it's strong enough to deal with some of these worldly dhammas that come our way. You have enough mindfulness to just go away and think about something rather than react to it with pleasure or pain, happiness or suffering. Actually go away and just consider something, what's right, what's wrong, what's correct, incorrect, why am I suffering here, what's the problem here and so on. To get to the point where you can do that well, where you have a mirror that's just reflecting rather than just reacting with emotion. You have to work very hard. You have to have persistent effort, effort, be very patient, be willing to keep coming back, contemplating things, set aside some of those emotional reactions that keep coming up in the mind. You have to be tough, you know, weapons-grade patience, weapons-grade equanimity. You have to learn to be a little bit patient towards physical pain and mental pain. You have to learn to be able to renounce some of the desire for pleasure, physical pleasure, mental pleasure, which can be so alluring, but at the same time so distracting. And this is the way Ajahn Chah taught the monks. You see the older generation who live with Ajahn Chah. They have very obvious patience and equanimity towards experience. They don't just give in to sadness and grief or anger or worry. They don't get all excited and stirred up over pleasurable things either. What goes on in the deep depths of their heart we don't know. But just on the outside you can see them very calm and very patient with whatever's going on. That comes through many years of practice, being willing to give up, give up attachment to desire, craving for pleasure, for pain, all the emotional reactions we tend to get confused by. That patient endurance and that training in mindfulness comes, they have a lot of faith. Faith gives them the effort and the energy to keep doing it, keep practicing. And over time they get the experience which gives rise to wisdom. Wisdom mainly comes through experience. And just one obvious thing, if you keep practicing long enough, you get older, you can't help but just to see the impermanent nature of the world, the impermanent nature of your own moods, desires, mental activity, the impermanent nature of your own body, the impermanent nature of other people's bodies, the impermanent nature of material things in this world. You just stay in the world long enough and you keep practicing, that becomes obvious, doesn't it? If you've been practicing 10 years, 20 years, 30 years sincerely, you don't have to talk about levels of attainment, jhana or insight jhanas, but just many years of reflecting on your own experience, you can't help but to start noticing that things are impermanent and they change. And when you see change, 
and you, you become aware of it, you naturally start to become more detached to things without really much effort at all. It just happens. Things that formerly got you all stirred up over time don't get you all stirred up. Things that, different kinds of pleasure that seem so interesting and exciting no longer become so interesting and exciting. Things that got you very down, painful experiences are seen as just that much, are just painful experiences which you have to go through in life sometimes. We've all got karma. It brings us some pleasure, some pain. Rather than reacting to everything, going up, going down, like some kind of a show, showground or fairground ride, your mind becomes more even just because it sees impermanence over time. And what's the point of getting so high or so low over things that just come and go by themselves on their own conditions? Whether it's the behavior of other people, your own internal memories, thought formations coming up, the pleasure and pain of the body and so on. If you just keep watching it long enough, over and over and over and over again, after a while it's just obvious and this is all impermanence. What, in, what is impermanent is obviously dukkha. What is dukkha is not self, not to be grasped at as self. So the mind just wants to let go and just know things rather than get all caught up in it and react to it. Whether you give names to all that, you give levels of insight, the nine vipassana yanas or the sixteen vipassana yanas, levels of samadhi, levels of attainment, or not, doesn't really matter in the end. It's just whether the mind is freeing itself from suffering or not. You can just contemplate and say, this year compared with last year, when somebody criticizes you, do you get more or less upset? Make a very simple kind of reflection. Do you hold on to anger more this year than last year or less? Do you find it easier to develop kindness and compassion this year, easier than last? Do you have more lust this year than last, or less last this year than last. Whatever way you want to do it, just simple reflections like this can help just to bring you back to the very practice we're doing, the point of it, the purpose of it. And if it's if there's anything that you can see needs attention, well, give it attention, work on it. Look and see what you need to do to improve. Maybe you have to try harder, Maybe you have to consider things more deeply. Maybe you have to be more disciplined with yourself, more strict with the Vinaya. Maybe you have to renounce more. Maybe you have to give up to the training more, give up to the teacher more. Or maybe things are going well. You don't have to worry too much. You just keep practicing because they seem to be going well. You just keep doing the same thing. In the end, we have to be responsible for our own practice. Nobody can make these decisions for us. But you should be learning to reflect, to develop this mirror 
looking back at yourself. So there's plenty of food for contemplation in the last few weeks. We've had many teachings, reflections, our good fortune and many monks have come to visit us, many lay people come to support the monastery. So everything is there, the supportive factors are there. It's up to us to make use of that, to build on that through our own practice, our own efforts. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.